Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Our spotlight today is on visual art. From light-dappled ground cover to aerial views of multicolored tree canopy and an extreme close-up of a green frog, Peter Essek has produced a beautiful collection of photographs that comprise his new book, Fernbank Forest. We'll learn more about this extraordinary forest in the middle of our city later in the program. First, a story that raises the question, does art make life worth living? The Night Portrait by Laura Morelli is a novel set during the darkness of World War II and the illumination of Renaissance Italy. Leonardo da Vinci is central to both of those settings. The author joins us now via Zoom. Laura Morelli, welcome to City Lights. Hello, Lois. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm an Atlanta native, so this is really fun for me. Thank you for having me. Please tell us how this story brings together two very different eras, 500 years apart. So the night portrait centers around Leonardo da Vinci's famous portrait of the lady with the ermine. And it's a fascinating portrait, not only for Leonardo da Vinci's time, but also later. Um, portrait itself really is the center of the story. And it's what drew me to this tale because I realized that this beautiful portrait of this compelling young woman holding a white furry creature in her lap had an incredible story behind it, not only in the 15th century, but also in the 20th, when it became the object of desire of a a very powerful man. Mm. Now, I noticed that you often end a chapter with a sentence that repeats as the introduction to the next chapter in a different time period. That device translated to musical form for me, a recurring theme or light motive. Would you talk about how you arrived at using that? Yeah, that's. I'm so glad that you found that a compelling aspect of the story because, you know, if you think about it, it's tricky to pull together two such incredibly different eras. Um, And I was looking for a way to tie the story of the two women in the book, in particular, Cecilia Gallerani, who is the mistress of the de facto Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, and then a curator in the 1930s and 40s in Germany, who is tasked with this impossible task of stealing works of art um, on behalf of the Nazis. And so that was a way of linking the two time periods and trying to pull the reader through the five centuries that separated these two women. 
Well, it's very effective. The chapters alternate between the time periods. Would you talk about the alternating points of view? Leonardo begins the story, and his chapters are told in the first person. That's right. Um, there are four narrators in this story, Leonardo da Vinci being the first one, and he um, does speak as if he's talking to the reader um, and talks in the first person. The other characters use a different point of view that we hear the story as if, you know, it's from the past. And uh, the other three characters are Cecilia Gallerani, who is the subject of this portrait of the lady with the ermine. And then in the 20th century, we have two points of view, again, one woman and one man. And um, the woman is a fictionalized curator in Germany, and she was based on some real historical figures who had this impossible task, as I said, of, of taking works of art on behalf of the Nazis. And then the fourth protagonist is a fictionalized monuments man. You probably are familiar with the, with the book and the wonderful movie about the, the monuments men. And so my Dominic in the story is based on um, one of the men whose job it was to find all of these works of art that the Nazis had, had hidden and bring them back. And so one of the fantastic parts of the story of the lady with the ermine is that the painting was stolen in 1939, but then it actually was returned uh, back to its original owner after the war. And the Monuments Men were instrumental in making that happen. So it's, uh, like I said, it's such a fabulous story. You know, you can't make it up, but you know, certainly there are parts that we don't know. And that's the fun of being a historical novelist is making up those parts that we don't know. Leonardo's brilliance as a painter seems to matter less to him in your depiction than his engineering and architectural talent. Why did you emphasize the genius inventor in your portrayal of Leonardo? There's a letter that survives to the present day in an archive in Milan that is a letter that Leonardo da Vinci sent to Ludovico Sforza, this de facto Duke of Milan, in the 1480s, in which it's sort of like a resume. He lists all of his skills uh, that he could provide to the Duke. And there are about there are about 15 lines in this letter, you know, and it says, you know, your your lordship, these are the things that I can provide for you. And it's a it's a laundry list of things like um, defensible bridges that he could design something that we might imagine would be sort of like an armored tank, if you can imagine what that might have looked like in, in Leonardo da Vinci's time. He talks about um, things that he can engineer to prevent Milan from being attacked by water or by land. And at the very end of this laundry list, he says, oh, and by the way, if there's no war going on, I can also paint. And so, you know, as up for us today, looking back, that's just hilarious. But um, I do think looking back at Leonardo's writings, and I always start with primary sources when I start a research project, I do think that he really saw himself primarily as an engineer and a scientist and the the painting and the drawing was sort of part of that but it it wasn't necessarily always at the forefront of his mind and so at this in this story i tried to depict this poor man who was struggling with trying to do something really lasting and great in the scientific and engineering and military field. He was so obsessed with military designs, which made it sort of an interesting parallel with the World War II story in and of itself. And then to see what his legacy is. His legacy is are these paintings of these mysterious women of the 15th and 16th centuries. And uh, so it was sort of a paradox for me and something that was interesting to explore. Well, I absolutely loved that part of the book, and I was going to ask you about that letter on page 91 where he itemizes everything he can do, and only the final item is 
I can execute sculpture in marble, bronze, and clay, likewise in painting. I can do everything possible as well as any other, and then signs it in humility, if you will. I thought you fictionalized that. No, it's a real letter, and it's it's amazing. I mean, I, you know, that's such that's such the joy and the the drama of studying art history is coming across things like that, and um, you know, things that that are just such great stories that you couldn't make up. And so I look at historical fiction sort of like one of those giant multi-thousand piece puzzles that you probably got as a kid in a big box. And, you know, if you imagine getting one of those boxes with about half the pieces missing, that's sort of what it's like to take on a project like this book. You have all these pieces that you know, you know, the pieces that go on the corners and the edges and the, the bigger images that you can recognize from the picture on the cover of the box. But then there's all this stuff that's missing. And um, so that's the fun of piecing it all together. But that particular letter is a real letter and I, and I tried to transcribe it word for word in the book. In fact, Laura, you earned a PhD in art history from Yale and taught at the college level. How did your advanced knowledge of art inform this novel? I think that it definitely informs the research behind it. Um, I always start, as I said, with primary sources. I think they're, it's fascinating to read what people wrote about a work of, of painting or sculpture, architecture at the time. Uh, you see it through completely different eyes. In the 15th century, people had a very different view even of what art was um, than we do now. And so certainly that art historical training informed my research. I always read all the scholarly sources. I've read every scholarly article now about Da Vinci's Lady with the Ermine, and it's all of the times it's been x-rayed and the, the you know, types of pigments that Leonardo da Vinci used and, and preparatory drawings and interpretations of what the heck that ermine means and <laughs> all of the mysterious aspects that scholars try to, um, to study about a work like this. But at the end of the day, I feel like as a historical novelist, if I've done my job, then all of that research disappears. It sort of is invisible, if that makes sense, because at the end of the day, it has to be a good story. The reader has to care about what happens to the characters. So no matter how much art historical research I've done, you know, that's really the primary job is to tell a great story. Is Italian Renaissance art your specialty area? I studied the Middle Ages and Renaissance and I love this period and I think that it's it's fascinating because it is so rich in, in primary sources. There's so much to read, even though of course there are lots of things we don't know. There's, uh, there's so much to study, there's so much tangible that we can hold on to in the Italian Renaissance. You know, we have uh, legal accounts that are fascinating that, that give you a peek into what people you know, thought was egregious in the, in the society and, you know, rules that were broken that are fascinating to read. There are um, artist contracts that you can read and you can see what the patrons cared about, you know, and, and how they paid their artists. So many things. So it's, it's a great period to work in. Georgia author Laura Morelli. We'll hear more about her new novel, The Night Portrait, after a quick break, you're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. 
Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Georgia author Laura Morelli. Her latest book is The Night Portrait, a novel of World War II and Da Vinci's Italy. This part of our interview begins with the main character from the World War II setting of the book. Edith's story begins in 1939 in Munich. She is a conservator. She restores paintings, and later in the novel, restoring paintings to their rightful owners becomes her quest. Is that why you made her specialty the restoration of art? Yes, I, part of the interest for me in the World War II characters was to imagine what it might be like to be someone, be the person who was tasked with stealing um, a portrait by Leonardo da Vinci or any of the other works of art that the Nazis took um, at the beginning of the war. And if you ever want to read something, uh, something incredible, you know, go read about all of the works of art that, that the Nazis took at the beginning of World War II. The scale of that effort is absolutely staggering. And I thought about all of the art professionals across Germany who were conscripted into this effort. Um, there were some people, art historians, curators, museum directors, conservators who were conscripted into this effort. And then there were many, um, you know, more people lower on the totem pole in museums like my fictionalized Edith, who were just quietly working away. Many of them were, um, you know, modest, introverted people who maybe had gone to study art or art history. Um, Kajistan Mulman, who was one of the, the leaders of this effort to, to take works of art, had a PhD in art history like I do. He, he wrote his dissertation on the Baroque fountains of Salzburg, Austria. I can only imagine he could have never dreamed in his wildest dreams that he would one day head up this massive effort to steal works of art from all across Eastern Europe. And so that in itself was fascinating to me to imagine that happening to a character. And, um, you know, with Edith in particular, I thought it was interesting to think about her as someone who really cared about the survival of works of art, um, which is why I decided to make her a conservator working in this laboratory, this quiet little laboratory in the basement of, um, of a museum in Munich. And then she's pulled into this, this uh, thing that was so much bigger than her. Hmm. The next narrator we meet is Cecilia, whose story begins 450 years before Edith's. Cecilia is the subject of da Vinci's portrait, and she is a richly developed character. Did your research for this book reveal much about her, or is her life entirely imagined by you? We know a few things about Cecilia Gallerani. We know that she came from a Sienese family. Um, her father was kind of a um, low-level uh, diplomat at the court of Milan, which is probably how she ended up catching the eye of Ludovico Sforza. She was destined to, uh, for life in a convent in Milan, but somehow she managed to turn Ludovico Sforza's head and instead she was pulled into the ducal castle as his mistress. We know that. Uh, we know also some things about her later life. Uh, we know that she was probably pushed out of the castle, not uh, within a, a couple of years of being pulled in. And we know that she uh, did not end up going to the convent after all, which is what often happened with uh, in situations like this. 
but she instead married uh, another Ludovico, not too far from Milan, and um, had many children and was celebrated as an important um, center of culture. She and her, her home and her, her small court in Lombardy were celebrated as a center for the arts. She, we know that she was a musician, that she was a writer, and that she invited people into her court there. And so we know that's pretty much the extent of what we know about her. We know she lived to, um, you know, an older age, that she had lots of children. We know some things about her children, but that's pretty much it. We really don't know any specifics or details about what happened behind the walls of that castle when she was there as the mistress of Ludovico Sforza. And, um, and when she sat before Leonardo da Vinci, all of that is unknown. And so part of the fun of, of Cecilia's story was imagining what might have happened behind those walls. Well, you depict her as far more than a beauty. She loves all forms of art and had been yearning for a life filled with riches that go beyond material wealth. Will you describe Da Vinci's portrait of Cecilia now. Well, if you're home listening to this, I hope you'll go on Google and just Google Da Vinci lady with the ermine and you'll probably say, oh yes, I've seen that portrait. It's it's a an image that most people, you know, if I pull it up on my phone and show someone, they say, oh yes, I know that portrait. I've seen it. It's a, a beautiful, peaceful portrait with an almost um, completely black background, although that's probably what, uh, not what Leonardo originally painted, uh, that that severe black background. It might have originally had a background sort of like the Mona Lisa with a very atmospheric landscape. In any case, the subject herself is a lively looking young lady who is turned in sort of three quarter view. She looks as if maybe she's just noticed something at the windowsill, like a bird flitting by or someone walking by. Um, there's there's a, an incredible vivacity to the moment that Leonardo da Vinci has captured. Uh, she's dressed in what would have been considered you know the the cutting edge of uh of the, the late 15th century she's uh, dressed in a very severe kind of um dress that it doesn't have a lot of embellishment the milanese back then as they are today were were sort of known for this severe elegance she has her hair pulled back and she's carrying this white fluffy ermine, which is something like a ferret. It was a wild creature. Leonardo da Vinci wrote about uh, ermines in his notebooks, which is fascinating. And we, we know that um, he talked a little bit about the symbolism of them. Um, but the, the ermine itself ha has a multi-layered interpretation and meaning, which is something that is part of the story, but um, is certainly something that has fascinated art historians as well. Um, it was, it's a portrait that now hangs in the National Gallery in Krakow in Poland. Uh, it was purchased at some point in the um, 1700s by a noble Polish family, and it was in their private collection until it was taken by the Nazis in 1939. Hmm. I especially enjoyed the portion where you describe Leonardo's technique of applying paint with his finger. Is that common knowledge? I don't know how, how common it is. Um, we know that it's true. We can see his fingerprints on numerous paintings. Um, we think that that's probably in part the way that he achieved these fumato effects, you know, this very smoky, veiled, thin layers of paint and varnish. And uh, so you can just sort of picture in your head him standing at an easel and applying some color with a brush and then coming behind with his fingers and sort of blending the colors together. And that's that makes someone so famous at remote seem human, I think, which is a fascinating detail. I really loved being a fly on the wall in that part of the book. 
Dominic is the fourth character, the American soldier who lands on Omaha Beach during the invasion of Normandy in 1944. He happens to love drawing, though he works in a coal mine in Pennsylvania. And he has a baby girl named Cecilia. What role does Dominic play in this story? So Dominic is um, conscripted into the war effort as a private. Um, you know, certainly by 1944, the Americans were well, well, well aware of the Nazi atrocities. Um, he lands on the Normandy beaches ready to do a job, committed and dedicated to do what he has to do so that he can turn around and go back to his wife and his baby as soon as possible. But as Dominic is assigned in a military police unit to a unit of uh, monuments men, he becomes more aware of the larger allied effort to try to save and restitute these masterpieces from around Europe. And Dominic's story is really about this conflict between the value of a work of art and the value of a human life. And Dominic continues to question that throughout the story of, you know, what's more important, saving people or saving works of art? And, you know, he's not a very well-educated man. He's, um, you know, as you said, he's a coal miner from Pittsburgh, um, but he does, uh, he's of Italian origin and he loves to draw. And so he has this artistic sensibility and he becomes fascinated with what the Monuments Men are doing. And in the end, he plays a really important role. Yes, he does. His name is Bonelli, yours is Morelli. Any intentional similarity? Well, the um, part of the Morellis immigrated um, to Pittsburgh and worked in the mines. And so that was um, kind of a, a detail that came to me automatically <laughs> as uh, for this character. And uh, so I, I do feel a certain affinity with Dominic. I feel like I know him. I feel like I've met him, you know, that I've talked with him. He seems very real to me. I almost felt like you thought of him as a descendant of Cecilia. Am I overthinking that? Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I'm he overthinking is. it. Maybe he is. <laughs> well, that, that you made him an artist and that his closest friend during the war advises him to keep drawing, and that he's got that little baby named Cecilia, I thought, hmm. But There's a connection, why not? <laughs> why not? Um, toward the end of the novel, I noticed a similarity in the numbers of the dates you assign. The 1490s and the 1940s contain the same numerals with the four and nine reversed. Isn't that interesting? That was one of the first things I noticed when I started piecing together this timeline is it's almost like a photo negative with the, with the dates, uh, which is fascinating. Oh, yes. You mentioned Dominic's dilemma and moral question. At different points in the novel, you raise the question, does art make life worth living? What is the answer you want readers to take away? Well, at a certain point in the novel, um, this uh, vicar who is a, a, based on a real character asked Dominic what he thinks about being at war. And, you know, what would life be like if he went back home and there were no art, if there, there were no beauty, no music, um, no visual arts in the world, you know, what kind of life would that be? And that sort of 
helps turn Dominic's head and, and change his ideas about his mission and what he's there for. And certainly um, the early readers of this book have told me that they have, it has sort of affirmed for them the importance of, of art to our lives as human beings. And for that, I'm, I'm very gratified. Hmm. Well, at a time when travel is not easy, much less possible, even museum visits are scarce and different in the COVID-19 world, it's such a welcome escape to go back to Renaissance Italy and 20th century Munich as well. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to, to hear that you traveled vicariously <laughs> via the night portrait. Laura Morelli, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lois. This has been so fun. Georgia author Laura Morelli. Her new book is The Night Portrait, a novel of World War II and Da Vinci's Italy. Forests are often the settings of fairy tales, and with good reason. They can be magical places, connecting us with life from ages ago, while providing refuge from the present. Atlanta has a forest in the very center of the city. That it survives to this day is largely thanks to an early 20th century visionary named Emily Harrison. Her story is told in an essay by Janice Ray that is part of Fernbank Forest, a new book of photographs by Peter Essek. He took the pictures of Fernbank Forest from 2015 through 2017. When he joined me recently via Zoom, Peter Essek talked about the origin of this project. I received a commission from Fernbank Forest through the generosity of a donation from my gallery. And he gave a donation for me to photograph the forest while it was being restored uh, and was opened back into the public. As far as the very beginning of the forest, there was a man, Z.D. Harrison, who was a clerk on the Georgia Supreme Court, and he was the first owner of the property. And his daughter, Emily Harrison, uh, lived on the property for most of her life. And she was the one who's responsible for starting Fernbank Museum and for protecting the forest. In what ways was Emily Harrison extraordinary in her academic achievements as well as her philosophy of education? Yeah, she was a real visionary, an environmentalist way ahead of her time. And she had a, an idea called the classroom in the woods. And uh, she had studied about how it was good for school children to spend time in nature. And so that was her dream, was to have Fernbank be preserved as an old growth forest and also be a place where students and children could go. And this has proven out over time uh, with a lot of studies recently that school children do uh, come are more calm and they're uh, more happier when they spend time in uh, forest woodlands. She founded an out-of-door school in Sarasota, Florida, and wanted to start a similar school here in 1908. What became of that? Well, she never realized that particular dream but what she ended up doing was she got a, a nonprofit started, which was the Fernbank Museum. And there was a 48 year lease, which was given to the DeKalb County Schools. And 
before she passed away uh, in the 1960s, she was able to realize that dream. And what happened was that it was used very well by uh, the DeKalb County Schools. Uh, but what happened over time was that a lot of invasive species came in and uh, the forest really needed to be maintained. And as, as a school district, they would take kids there, but they really didn't have the funds or expertise to do that. So that's what in 2012, the Burnbank uh, Museum got the forest uh, back after the, this 48 year lease had expired and they um, started the process of uh, taking out a lot of these invasive species that had been come in from the neighboring uh, homes and yards. Through what efforts did the forest remain intact? Well, the Fernbank Museum has spent over 10,000 hours, uh, person hours, uh, very carefully uh, restoring the forest. And uh, one metaphor would be how you would restore a real um, famous painting. Uh, you have to very carefully take, take out these invasive species, but you have to leave and not touch all the wonderful native uh, flowers and vegetation. So the, the forest floor, when I first saw it in 2015, had uh, a lot of English ivy and Chinese wisteria that was growing along uh, the bottom of the forest floor. And this, this was sort of choking out a lot of the native species. So this process that, that Fernbank has uh, committed to uh, it's it's a long-term project it's very time consuming and uh, expensive at, at some levels but they have done a great job and it is a an ongoing project because these seeds continue to blow in and, and never sort of <laughs> never never ending forever project i guess mm. would you describe your visit to what's mentioned in the book as the uncommodified part of Fernbank and the impact of that experience on you? Part of this commission, I was able to come and go into Fernbank Forest uh, whenever I wanted to. I spent a lot of time early in the mornings. Um, this old growth area is very special. It's a 65-acre section uh, that has never been logged or, or cut. And so you have these 300-year-old trees along with small saplings as well. And uh, it's a functioning old-growth forest. And that's what makes it very special to have a, a forest of this quality right in a downtown location in the middle of a metropolitan. And you were first taken there by a ranger who described himself as the luckiest person in the world. I read that your father was a science teacher, Peter. How did his career influence your own? Well, he had a great intellectual curiosity and as a teacher, and he also uh, was an outdoors person. Um, our family, we grew, I grew up in Southern California and we spent a lot of time on the weekends and the summers. Uh, we were some of the original backpackers and hikers and joggers and skiers and all that kind of thing. So he, he is definitely, and uh, my mother is also interested in the same type of thing. So they both were a big influence uh, on my appreciation of nature. Hmm. So how did you go from that first magical trip into the forest that's described 
to this beautiful book of photography? How do we get from there to here? Well, uh, I think you have to first spend some time. And when I first went there, if, if I'm very honest, I was looking, I was saying, wow, I, I don't know if I can really do a, some great pictures here. You know, I, a lot of nature photographers love to go to uh, the great national parks like Yellowstone or Yosemite or down to Patagonia, these dramatic uh, mountains and rivers. And so when you look at Fernbank at first, you say, well, it's a, it's a beautiful forest. You know? And so it took me a little time, but I, I really sort of fell in love with, with uh, just the magical uh, lights and the different seasons and the fact that I was there often in this you know, beautiful setting just all by myself, you know, very early in the morning. So that's, that was what sort of led me to, to see that there was these different moods and the lights and the color and the sort of the, the cycles of the forest from the decay to the growth. Uh, and that's, that's what started, started to lead to uh, a larger project that ultimately became the book. Yes, and in fact, the series of fine art photographs are in the museum's collection. Yes, we did. Uh, when I originally had finished the uh, project, we had a, an exhibit at Burnbank Museum. And we, at that time, I had donated a portfolio of uh, around 40 images that are in the uh, collection, the permanent collection of Burnbank. Hmm. Beech leaf pine tree is the first photo we see. The tree trunk brought to mind Nolte's famous painting of the scream. And, and then when I saw the next photo, a two-page photo, forest and pond, I thought about George Surratt's pointillism, tiny dots conveying an image. And, and I stopped myself. I, I paused to remind myself of something quite basic, of course, that painters, painters strive to recreate nature. Here, you are capturing nature and uh, a reminder that is it is in this pure context that we should experience and and appreciate the natural world. Uh, yes, I I have always believed that uh, nature has, especially uh, wilderness or undisturbed or untrammeled nature, uh, as a subject matter just provides uh, unlimited opportunities for an artist. And uh, the examples that you mentioned were in some ways an artist maybe taking an aspect of nature and, and you know, um, just being inspired by it. And what I have done is just tried to, to capture it uh, in its real uh, raw form and in its there is these very, very different uh, forms and designs uh, that that are all present in one individual forest. Yes, and clearly you can tell I'm more of an indoors person if my references are, are <laughs> hanging in museums. Um, there are three subjects you present as collages. Why did you choose to display those images in that style? Well, I, I had originally sort of looked at one of them. It was sort of like 16 pictures of thumbnail. And you sort of originally, they always kind of sort of pick out the one that you think is 
the best one. That's sort of the editing process. Uh, but when I looked at them, uh, one, I, I, I just couldn't find the one. And then I started seeing that as a whole, it actually worked together. So in some ways, uh, I, it was a, a little bit of a metaphor maybe for how the forest works, that you have individual trees and then you have a whole forest and that each of the, the trees work together. Um, the pictures in the collage, what I found is the, you look at the one individual picture and you'll see how it relates to the one next to it. And then when you look, you kind of go back a little farther, you kind of see them all together as an individual picture. And so that's sort of just different ways of seeing and trying to think of uh, a more, I guess, a contemporary or a more personal vision of how, how to represent some of the feelings that you get uh, in a place like Burnbank. It's very effective. The wildlife pictures are wonderful. A barred owl, blue jays, a green frog. 2016 is one of my favorites. Were these subjects more difficult to capture? I mean, they move around. Yeah, they, they are. Um, the green frog, there, there's a group uh, from Fernbank Museum and some volunteers that uh, once a month right at dusk, and I think it's like on a Wednesday evening, they go and they count all the amphibians. And amphibians are special because they're indicative of good water quality. And so if you have uh, like salamanders and frogs, then uh, that's really great for the water quality. And we, we debated a little bit about the, the frog. Uh, Bill Bowling, the, the editor, uh, publisher at Fall Line really liked that picture. He said it just made him smile every time he saw it. So that's why we ended up, had to put that one in. Oh, he is wonderful. Great big eyes. Peter, would you talk about the last photograph of the book, why you chose to end with a sunrise over the Atlanta skyline? Well, that that picture was taken with a drone and about, you know, partway through uh, doing this, these photographs, I realized that, you know, that I had a lot of really nice nature photos, but I really didn't show, you know, that it was an urban forest. And uh, that's part of the beauty of it. When you go in, in the firm bank, you sort of get into a different realm. Uh, but I, I had the idea of, you know, using a drone and I had learned to fly it. And so we decided we either had to put that picture as the first one or the last one and uh, decided that it would be sort of a, a neat surprise to see, see all of this, this beauty. And then at the end, you kind of see that, you know, not too far away is this downtown Atlanta and all of the the big city. Were you using drones inside the Fernbank Forest? I was, yeah. Actually, I, I did some. You can la launch, a few times I would launch from Clifton Avenue right there. And then sometimes I would, where the pond is, there's an opening. And so you can take pictures um, sort of inside the forest, a little higher up. But I think uh, most of the ones were above the canopy. And so there's a few pictures of the fall colors. And that was just a whole different perspective that you couldn't get from the ground. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, I've continued to fly drones and I, I'm a big fan of them as a, from a positive standpoint as a tool for photographers, they just offer a whole different perspective. My goodness, I love thinking that they can be used for beauty and peace, yeah. and not yeah. the original association we have with them. Yeah, they, 
I, I like that aspect too. There is an excellent essay Janice Ray provides in the book, and you wrote some haikus. Would you read your final haiku? Fusion of forest and city, Piedmont landscape of refuge and hope. It's a beautiful note to end on. Peter Essek, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for shining a little light on Fernbank Forest. Peter Essek, his book of photography, Fernbank Forest, is available now. A little guidebook and map of the forest comes with the volume. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 to hear about Challenge Island, an innovative virtual series of STEAM programs for kids. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights. And City Lights is now a podcast. Listen and subscribe on just about any platform. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.